Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Martin, the host of the Morning Bell podcast. On today's episode, Ian and I are joined by C.S. Pacat. Born in Australia and educated at the University of Melbourne, she has since lived in a number of cities, including Tokyo and Perugia. She currently resides and writes in Melbourne. Kat is the author of the best-selling Captive Prince trilogy. Her first series began its life as an original fiction web serial, which attracted viral attention before being acquired by Penguin USA. The Captive Prince trilogy went on to become a USA Today bestseller after being published to commercial success and critical acclaim. In the media section of today's episode, we chat about Philip Pullman's His Dark Material series, which I incorrectly call His Dangerous Materials. Forgive me. You can kind of see my train of thought there. We talk about the recent Beauty and the Beast movie, the American version of The Office, and briefly mention the podcast S-Town. In the topic, we chat about difficult subject matter in fiction. How can we approach it as writers? Should we approach it, and how much can we? Is there a moral obligation on us? As always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact me on my email, mailbox at thepenofjoel.com. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. We are at the Brunswick Street Bookstore today, and I am joined, once more, by my co-host, Ian Laking. Ian, welcome to the show. It's been a little bit of time since we've done a podcast together. Yeah, it's been a bit of time. Yeah. So, how is it like to be back from the festival? You re-energized? Yeah. Are you ready to dig into literature? Yeah, Or absolutely. are you just done? Oh, no, look, I uh, actually, you know, the, the festival has kind of been part of my turbocharge into, into reading a lot of stuff. So it's been, it's been good, actually. I found I, I got a lot of energy out of the festival. So great being back. Hmm, fantastic. So how's your week been? Has it been busy? Have you been uh, writing? Yeah. I or have... am I going to guilt you into not getting your words done this week? No, actually, well, I've, um, I'm, I'm tracking down. I, I have an editor that I've just started working with. So I've just finished a bit of work and editing is fun. Uh, there's only so much of it I can do at once, but yeah, yeah, it's been editing for me. Do you get editing fatigue? I, I do. And I tend to get editing fatigue a lot more. Like today I was on my phone, I took a break and I saw the Dark Souls 3 expansion had just come out and oh I was about goodness. to get up and go home and play it. <laughs> and I was like, no, Ian, sit down and do some do more editing. Job. So I did. I can die a thousand deaths in the game or in my manuscript. <laughs> That's right. So I chose the manuscript and it was good. So there we go. I, uh, I was a good boy today. Fantastic. <laughs> Well, you've heard her voice. We have a guest today, and that guest is none other than the illustrious C.S. Pacat. Cat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Fantastic to have you. Now, do what's the adjectives that people usually name? Illustrious, majestic, <laughs> you wear very good clothing. What's the... I don't think that you can ask an author to supply their own adjectives. <laughs> Stupendous. Stupendous. <laughs> there you go. I'll take it. I'll take whatever adjectives I can go. get. There you go. Fantastic. So how has your week been? What have you been up to? Um, uh, much like you, Ian, I've just been writing. I've been heads down. And mm-hmm. um, ever since I started to write full time, I've not really managed the transition so well from writing as the thing I do in my free time. Because yeah. I write all day and then I go yep. home and I have mm. free time and I'm like, oh, this is the time that I write. I will <laughs> keep writing. Mm. <laughs> yep. Yep. So. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. It's interesting. I, I can sympathize with that a little bit now because I have a break from work about a week between I go back and my work is editing. So <laughs> um, so that week I've, I, can, I can write basically full time for a week. And uh, man, it's tough. 
it's not the same. You're absolutely right. It, you've got this, um, at least I try and put myself into a nine to five mentality mm. and pump out, pump out enough. It's a first draft. So do enough work and it. Yeah. You get, you get, it's, it's this weird thing that I haven't experienced in a very long time is that I got to about, you know, uh, I don't know how many thousand words in for about a couple of days and it was consistent. And then I reached the third day <laughs> And I think that was the that was the moment where I broke the crust of like pain, where I no longer <laughs> felt like I was cutting myself, <laughs> and my blood was like oozing onto the computer screen to give me words. Right? It felt natural. It felt like you know it was right. finally flowing. Right. Um, and then I realized very strongly that I had two days before I go back to part time. <laughs> yeah, but I, I find too that you can you can just slightly detach from reality. I think because mm. you're just spending so much time alone, mm. so you're really you're really managing aloneness. Yeah, and then uh, you know after three or four days of that, yeah, when you have to emerge out into the world and you feel very sort of I don't know like a shucked oyster, <laughs> you just feel very. <laughs> yep. A vampire into the yeah, life. Yeah, you, you kind of like I've, I've just been typing. I haven't been speaking for a while. Mm. I haven't, you know. It's, yeah, what yeah, do I like sound a vampire like? into the light. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's uh, we we talked about um, a podcast a while ago. I think with Stephen Amsterdam, where we talked about uh, you know care as an author and finding a, a way to to look after yourself because there is a balancing as well. And you know, I still work full time and, and write, and so for me, uh, what the benefit of that is you can focus as well. Like there's yeah. a, there's a point where you say, okay, now I have to write. This is my only time, mm. and if I don't do it now, I won't do it. Whereas you know, um, I know when I was uh, looking for work and I was kind of writing. Yeah. At the same time, uh, it wasn't the same. I didn't have the same pressure coming in. So there can be benefits. I find the book just constantly seductive. Like it's a thing mm. I, I always want to be yeah. doing. It's, and yep. I, yeah, um, I feel like it's a bit like being in love. That's the yeah. thing that your, your mind's always going back to and, and that you'd always slightly prefer to be doing. When you're no, lo- when you're no <laughs> longer writing it, you, you're thinking about it. Yeah. You know? It's that it's, there, there is... Okay, so well, this is... Let's take it just for a second to hear. It's a, it is a little bit like infatuation, I suppose, that yeah. when you really are at a certain point in, your, in the book, especially yeah. I find for me when it's coming towards a scene that I had in mind at the beginning that I really wanted to get to, I just find myself drawn like back to that. The electric part. Yeah, the electric part. That's right. When you're just like, this is the scene I want to write, but I'm, I'm not going to rush ahead of myself. I'm going to get to it or, you know. And uh, I know there have been times when I've been sitting there watching TV and, and my wife would be like, do you want to go write? And I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> so that, that would be I'll nice. Go and, you, you it's, it's weird because I think there's, you know, different people have different ways of approaching work, of planning your novel out and then all pantsing your way through the work, which mm-hmm. I tend to do. So you're a pantser. Yeah. What about oh, you, Ian? No, yeah. definitely not a pantser. I'm a planner as well. Yeah, planner, yeah. I, I'm a I'm a pantser with a conscience, I like to say. Like, I, I have this, I, I believe, <laughs> what does that mean? I believe that there's some sort of skeletal structure somewhere yeah. and it's formed by scenes so yeah. i know particular scenes are going to happen in the novel right. and i pants my way between the scenes so i get mm. from scene a to b and c and such um so so off that when i get to a particular scene that i know i've been building up to and when i hit the scene and when i start writing the scene yes you know that's where i get that euphoria right. when it's just like this is really good, and mm. and it's. I think you tweeted, or you you probably did, uh, Ian, about a um, a, an image about a writer when he's in his work or when mm. she's in a work, and it's great when you're in it. And, you know, you give it a, a day, and it's like, oh, it's not bad, and then you give it a week, and it's like, wow, this is 
<laughs> maybe it's not great. And then like a year yeah. and you're like, I shouldn't have written that. Yeah. Well, that's, that has been my emotion coming back uh, to the manuscript because I hadn't read it for a year. <laughs> hashtag some regrets. Oh, yeah. Hashtag many, like... I've Lots just, of regrets. And I found that the editing, as I've gone through the manuscript, got like more and more and more. So I was just reading yeah. through the start of my edits and like little notes written in the margin. And then mm. by the end, I'm like whole swathes of yeah. slashes across pages and like, okay, so, you know, but, uh, and we were actually talking about this. I was talking about this with some friends on Twitter today. Um, it would be interesting to see the first drafts of some of your favorite novels to see where they came from. Oh, I, I wonder what would that do to you? It would, it, it, it would, I think it would wreck you mm? because I think if you, that there are some incredibly talented geniuses out there mm. that can first draft yeah. and that's it. Like, and that scares me. I've yet to meet one, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I and I would be horrified. Right. If horrified if it was true. good. If it was good. Yeah. <laughs> at, no, I mean, if it was bad, I'd feel validated. But be- yeah. <laughs> because I find the book in the planning, mm. my first draft is pretty much my final yeah. draft. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 See, so I, I tend to write, um, I would say what I've discovered with my writing is that because I wrote that very early on in my writing, that's where the quality issue is. But in terms of the structure of rule, yeah, it's pretty much mostly there. There's... Oh, go for it. No, no, that's all I had. Oh, I was going to jump in because I, I remembered this scene in a film that I love in Amadeus um, where Scaletti, I think, is the, uh, ant- well, sort of the antagonist of the story. Um, and there's mm. a scene where he is looking at, um, he's looking at Mozart's work and he's got the folder open and one, F. Murray Abraham is a fantastic actor. So, you mm. know, this, this scene is really well acted, but he's looking at the work and then he's like, oh, okay, you know, there's a copy. And then she says, um, no, these are originals. Right. And his face is this mix of <laughs> horror and euphoria <laughs> when he realizes the man is a genius. Right. That f- straight mm. from his mind, he can pen complete... Um, mm sheets of music yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there are some writers like that who just yeah. hold story instinctively that's within right. them and then it yep. flows out it just flows I, out I, that's definitely not the case for me mm. I have to mm. I have to painstakingly drag or create something out of nothing mm. I, <laughs> yep. and then plan it for a really long time and yeah. then only then can I start to write manuscript and then the process of writing manuscript is very slow because unless it's correct I can't move forward right okay mm. so and that's and that's so that's generally how you tend to go do you find yeah. that, that that's so from what, just reflecting back on what you're saying, um, first draft tends to be a lot slower to do, but it's by the end of it, you're fairly happy with it overall as a starting point. At, at least thus far, mm. I haven't really had to do a huge structural edit or something right. like that on a, mm. on, a on, on the draft. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and I think um, I, we, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a planner, you know, he, he plans out his stories uh, sort of in a similar fashion. And yeah, I think there's less anxiety that comes towards the end because you have some sense of, okay, I know how I'm going to shape this story. By the end, yes. But when mm. two years of working on your book <laughs> equals yeah. no manuscript at all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a scary That's time. scary. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Now, um, we shall move uh, quite swiftly on to our media section so we can talk about what we have been filling ourselves with in terms of literature, in terms of film, of theatre, and such, Mm -hmm. Um, and Netflix. 
I guess. <laughs> and if. Um, Ian, let's start with you. What have you been? What have you got for us? Yeah, so I've I've been doing a fair bit of reading. I when I last was on the podcast, I was halfway through Silence of the Lambs. Speaking of structure, and I've just uh, that's I've, like a perfect book. Unbelievable! <laughs> unbelievable. Yes. Very well. This is precisely constructed. Did my head in so good. Just so so good, and I hadn't seen the movie, so I didn't know what was coming. Mm. Oh wow! Yeah, and my and also um, my wife Tiff <laughs> hadn't seen it. I either, want that so, experience. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was great, and so I was so glad I hadn't seen the movie, yeah. um, which was yeah fantastic, and I was so so envious, so envious, and in a really good way, in a really respectful yeah, yeah. kind of like I you are You're so a master great. of your craft, yeah, master yeah. of the craft, um, and that was great. And but then I'm now reading a book where I have seen the movie, uh, The Golden Compass. So Philip Pullman's ah, the dangerous series. materials. Yeah, so oh, I, I love the first book in that series. I yeah. really love it. So really enjoying uh, getting into that. So I've been hearing that that again is a, is quite a well constructed yeah. book, mm-hmm. and I have yet to read it, and I should. Um, what what um, got you? Did you have you finished it? Um, no, I, well, I'm about uh, over halfway now, so I'm, okay. I'm slamming through it really quickly. What's the what's the general feeling? So far, well, and I and I know I generally don't like asking people what they think for a book before they finish it, but you know, that's really good. Well constructed world, really well constructed. Um, yeah, people call it steampunk, and I was reading it because you know I'd, I've been saying to people oh, it's steampunk for so long based on the movie, but actually, um, it's, it's it's like steampunk light. Yeah, I can, is that such a thing? Well, it's I guess it's it borrows from steampunk. Yeah. yeah. Is it? Oh, I, I suppose there. Are, yeah, I can see some. It's mm. it's vague actually, and I feel like you know. Uh, it's good. I, it is really good. And so I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed the kind of imagination shown and the, it's, it's well written. The prose are good. The, the story structure is great. It's just a really solid book. Mm. Yeah. I would recommend. Fantastic. Anything else for us? Look, the other things I've been doing, uh, I saw Beauty and the Beast, which I think is an example of how to fill out a story unnecessarily. Uh, <laughs> oh. You know, that's just me. Like, let's. Uh, who's seen the movie here? I, I've seen it, yeah. Okay, I, yeah. I haven't, but I've got no interest in, so let's talk. <laughs> well, I'm not going to spoil it much, am I, really? We can, put a, we can put a spoiler no, on no. at the start of this. <laughs> it's okay. Look, um, I just felt like the extra details they added in weren't, uh, in terms of background stuff, mm-hmm didn't really help much that was my thought on it okay um, but i enjoyed it still mostly i mean i mean the audience was mostly people around my age and yeah. uh so they know their audience that's about all interesting cat <laughs> really. what did you think of the movie um i didn't grow up as a disney kid yeah, oh, right. so i i didn't have uh any like loyalty to yeah. the original which i right. watched right before i went out to see oh. for the first oh, really? time right before i went out to see the new film okay but right. i liked the cartoon more yeah <laughs> um yep. and yep. yeah it's solid I, the film something about beauty and the beast i always think but you fell in love with the beast and now you're stuck with this other yep. guy oh. <laughs> at the end oh. um, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's true. Sorry, but I, th- I feel like the f- that was a lot worse in the live action film. That because feeling, he, yeah, not because he yeah, was yeah. too. He was so different. Yeah, <laughs> can I be a bit facetious as well? Because yeah, he was so different actually. Um, and a friend of mine said, uh, "I feel like the guy is uglier than the beast." The oh was, my oh, goodness! Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I was like. Oh. But like, here's the other thing, right? Whoa. She here's a line I want to pick up on because it bugged me. She says, you know, I want adventure in the great wide wonder. You're like, that's great. And what does she do? Well, she gets married and settles down in a castle. <laughs> um, so I mean, the castle, there's your lesson, folks. The, the castle's big, though. Is, is that the lesson? You know, you can dream of a oh, big God, future, but that's so hey, good. Don't forget to get married and settle oh. down in a big house. That's amazing. <laughs> so that was uh, <laughs> 20th century Disney message. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty unsubtle too. 
And it's also a bit of Stockholm Syndrome. So, anyway, the whole, you know, she falls in love yeah, with Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but um, that aside, the thing that I have been enjoying a lot, last thing for mm-hmm. me, uh, I've been binging the hell out of the American office. Okay. And yes. I saw the British office and... Mm-hmm groundbreaking and no um have either of you watched the american office i have watched neither office yes okay so we hadn't really either because i really uncomfortable with the the british ones are uncomfortable humor but the u.s one is fascinating they did the first series uh word for word copy of the um uk one and it it bombed in terms of uh audience right but then steve carell did 40 year old virgin he got popular they were going to cancel it they didn't they bought it back and they just ran with their own story and it's it's great. You like it? It's really oh. really well done. Yep, from the second season of The Office US, um, because they like if you compare that say with something another long running sitcom like Friends, Friends those people are jerks. Yes. you know they are really awful people who yeah. treat each other very poorly, and most of their problems are of their own making. In this one, you know, even the worst character you feel empathy for at certain points, and I'm really impressed by it. Interesting. I can't speak highly enough of it as a comedy. It's very curious when they shift. Uh cultural locale in a in a mm. in a series or a film um the thing that i keep thinking of is broadchurch is broadchurch is a show that i adored um mm. it's incredibly british and it's yep. de- um the way it deals with themes and then when it went over to america it just like just didn't do well at mm. all um and they you know whatever the word means but they americanized it yeah and their audience just didn't take um, mm. Even to that kind of material being changed for them, that's mm. curious that you liked it. I'm very, I'm very. Happy I was, to hear that. I was really surprised. So I didn't think I'd like it. Mm. Um, but we really just kind of decided to push through and, and see because I'd heard so many people say good things. Um, yeah, I'd say it's it's worth checking out if you want to be surprised by empathy for characters that you dislike strongly. It's great. Mm. So fantastic. Cass, have you got anything for us? Uh not watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I. I, last week I listened to S Town, mm. which is the This American Life mm. plus serial podcast. Right. Um, that I think it was released a couple of weeks ago and then just hit the top of the iTunes charts and mm. has had broken all download records yeah. really? and so on and so forth. Um, it is like nothing else I've ever listened to. I think one of the best documentaries ever made. Is it presented by Sarah Koenig? No, uh, she's isn't. one of the editors, but. Okay. Um, She's not the presenter, mm-hmm. whose name is Brian something rather. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and when I w- a friend recommended it to me, mm. and she said I can't tell you anything about it. You just have to listen to it. And I said, can you tell me something about it without spoiling it? And she said, yes, I can tell you that it's about a man and a <laughs> town. <laughs> and so that's what I can say about it. Mm. And on that basis, everyone should rush out and listen to it immediately. Fantastic. <laughs> See, I, I listened to Serial and I really enjoyed it. Um, so, yeah, no, I'll definitely give this it's, a shot. Um, it's, much, it's much better than Serial. Mm. Um, unlike Serial, they released it all at once. So it was not... Um, mm. It was not in serial format. So it's a coherent, fully formed story. Right. And it takes on, I guess, larger themes than the Serial podcast. yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's a little bit more hands-off than Serial, which is that you really do... I mean, there's a bit of editorialising here and there, but you really do just get to listen to events unfold and form your own judgments. So is it is it more like, um, the, you know, in Serial, it was more investigative journalism. What What's the 
you know, style of this. It's about a man and a camera. Oh, <laughs> wow. Nice. But I think that... Shut down. Just, just don't, <laughs> don't, I like it. If at all possible, don't don't seek out any spoilers okay. and just, just go and listen and let it sort of unfold. So once once you finish listening to this, don't click on anything else. Yeah, click on nothing else. Yep. Okay. And just go directly. Once, to once you finish on this, yeah. click the subscribe button to the morning bell. There we go. Then move on. <laughs> then move on. Then to move on. Because then yes. that's fine. <laughs> that's good. Two clicks. Next. <laughs> Two clicks. Yeah, it's absolutely fine. Um, fantastic. Well, it, I I really don't want to mention the Last Kingdom again because I've mentioned it twice in a row, and it's a TV show, which means I can only really talk about it when the series is over. Is this the Marco Polo TV show? No, um, it is the Bernard is based off Bernard Cornwall's uh, the Saxon um, stories. Oh, and I loved his books, and I really was looking. I don't f- think I know about this. Yes, mm. you should absolutely check it out. Kat. All right. Um, What's Sales pitch, second season, mm. is the most emotionally dense opening to a series that I've seen in a very long time. Season one is very light, and I don't know how you can be light if you're dealing with mm. the invasion of England during the, yeah. the, the great pagan army uh, when, the, when the Vikings came in, and you have this, you know, re- really uh, time of upheaval. Um, and it's really well handled in the books. And I thought the first season, while it had a lot of things going for it, it sort of lacked that punch, you know what I mean? We, we didn't really get into the characters and we didn't feel for them, really. The, the empathy levels were not there. And in, in the second season, I thought, you know, first episode, I was like, oh, is this going to you know, follow the same trend? I'm still going to watch it because I'm a sucker for historical fiction. But I would love it if it would to just dig in. And then second episode hit, and man, it packed packed a lot of mm. lot of punch, a okay. lot of emotional um, punch. And in the third episode, it sort of you know kept it going. So what's the what's what's the sparkliest bit for you? What's the bit that you really go in in that series? Sparkliest bit. Explain. Well, like the <laughs> the part that you you know you're really excited about that trope or that plot thread or the the bit that you really go go into imaginatively. Oh, that's interesting. I think it would have to be the relationship um, that the main character Uhtred of Bebenberg has with um, his destiny. And that is a that is a thing that he mentions pretty much mm. at the start of every episode. He has this little very awkward in the first season because you're like, why are you recapping episodes with your voice? It's mm. kind of odd, <laughs> right? And he's like, and I'm this the narrator is what of happens. My own life. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I don't know if I like this. Talking about yourself in the third. Talking person. about the stuff, yeah. and at the end of every narration, he would say, "Destiny is all," and that was really cheesy at the first. I was like, "All right, dude, you know we can we can lay off this." But in the second season, when you actually can see this guy moving towards his destiny in a very self-destructive manner, mm. you realize, oh, actually, you're obsessed about this. Right. This actually makes sense. And that's where I'm really into it, because seeing this character just go through hell, but you know why he's doing it. He has this, mm. you know, he's trying to internally drive himself, like this destructive engine just, like, powering him towards hell. It's great. I mm. love it. I think that would be... That would be the sparkly moment. Yeah. That's great, by the way. I haven't. I, that, that's awesome. <laughs> it's a very interesting way of looking at it. Um, yeah, so definitely check it out, Lost Kingdom. Mm-hmm. I'm sprucing it for the third episode in a row, ladies and gentlemen. You know I like this. So okay. <laughs> there you go. And that's my, my section for today. Now, as always, we have on the podcast a topic that we like to jump into talking um, 
either generally or very specifically uh, about certain topics. Next week, we have a topic that we're going to be diving in quite analytically, and that's looking at the idea of myth um, presented in popular culture today. Um, today, uh, we'll be looking at something, also digging in a little, but also just having a conversation about this topic. And I really hope that you'd, um, as the audience, would get into this and have the conversation for yourself. I always say on the podcast, conversation is the greatest thing that we can do uh, to contribute to um, a particular art form, along with just doing it. Um, so today we're going to talk about dangerous topics. We're going to talk about dangerous ideas and difficult ideas, I suppose, if we want to be even more specific with it. Mm. Um, hmm. So, Kat, you've written um, three books and sort of wrapping up the trilogy, I suppose. Um, first question. Um, there's a lot of topics that... Um, better or for worse people shy away from talking about right um whether that be in an interview format or whether that's an actual writer putting something down now um there's there's many ways and i'm going to once again segue off into something that will hopefully come back to this topic but i'm going to do my thing the xenomorph in alien Right. I've used this. Ex- <laughs> I knew. Yeah. That went nowhere. Yes. I was expecting. So, well done. Plot twist. <clears throat> the xenomorph in Alien. And I've talked about this and used this as a common example on the podcast. But for those who are just joining us and haven't listened to our entire backlog of 49 episodes, <laughs> what a shock. We'll yep. be talking about now the motif. The, yeah. the motif of the xenomorph mm-hmm. um, is, an, is a monster that isn't shown. For most of the movie in the right. first Alien, it's right. something that we allude to, and then in the end, bam! It's it's there. It's violent and it's horrifying, and Geiger's terrifying design of this alien becomes apparent. Mm. Now, uh, within dangerous issues or difficult topics, we like to show aspects of it. We like to show the fallout. We like to show what is going to happen, but we never really show the whole thing. Now. The word never there is very strong. We, we definitely do within certain mediums. Now, within the speculative medium, within fantasy and science fiction and within mm. the genre fiction, um, it, is a, it is something that people generally consider to be entertainment. And we read it, maybe not to feel good, but to be taken for a ride, be taken to a different place. Mm. Um, and sometimes those places that are incredibly violent or, or very happy or everything in between Well, there are some topics that I think uh, either culturally or just as an art form, we're still working through because they're topics that are very painful. Um, So Mm. Hmm. how do we write pain, Kat? Like how how do we deal with pain within speculative fiction without people, you know, recoiling in horror? Hmm. Uh, just an easy first question. Yeah. (laughs) Gee. (laughs) The soft serve up front. Yeah. Um, Mm. Before I answer that, or maybe as one kind of answer to that question, I think the reason that we often don't write horrors head on is, yes, partly because they're really difficult. It's It can be really difficult to go there yourself as the writer. And there's a lot of, there'll, there'll be a lot of factors that are telling you to swerve away. Um, your own insecurities of dealing with mm. the topic. Maybe you just don't want to have to go there yourself emotionally. Mm. Um what have you. Hmm. Um, but then I think also when you put the, the, the horror onto the page, often hmm. if, if you are completely explicit, 
then you are reductive mm. because you will never create something as horrifying as mm. the most horrifying thing that the reader can imagine into a space or a gap. Yep. Um, and so I think it's important to leave, I guess, when dealing with pain and horror, just to leave those gaps. Make sure that you are constructing them properly. Mm. <laughs> um, yep. And uh, uh, I, I, su- I suppose that a... A good analogy would be the idea of like negative space in sculpting. Mm, yeah. Um, where the sculptor will sculpt, obviously, their sculpture, but the gaps and spaces they're also controlling. Mm. Um, and I think when you're in control of those tech, those gaps, then I think you can often more fully render something that's horrible. Mm. 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 Yeah, that's good. Uh, it's it's an interesting one. Um, when I think back to when I was you know starting out in reading as a child, and some of the things that I really enjoyed. So to give us kind of a light example, mm. I think back to how well Tolkien and his writing dealt with violence. So he left a lot out. It's not particularly bloody and gory. And I remember the first time I read something that was particularly bloody and gory, I was quite surprised because uh, that negative space kind of thing, mm. you filled in the gaps yourself, and so it something doesn't like. I would say that I don't get a lot more reading pleasure out of something that is explicit and describing something necessarily as I do out of something that lets your mind fill in the gaps because your mind does. Now, I'm not saying that I think there's a place for sharp, brutal violence at the right point. Absolutely. Um, but I think letting your mind fill in the gaps. And, and I think if I'm thinking about a very difficult topic, and this is, a, uh, it is in literature. So Once Were Warriors is a very famous mm. book in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it deals with um, topics of gang violence, domestic abuse. Uh, it is very, very difficult to, um, to consume. Um, and I recall watching as a teenager, I was on TV, and I recall there's a scene of domestic violence, um, which is quite serious. And it wasn't shown, though. It, it ends with um, the main character being uh, thrown on the bed and you know what's about to happen. Mm. And then the next morning you see her face really bruised up and your mind fills in the gaps yeah. in that case. Now, it had been cut down for TV as well, but I didn't feel like it lost anything there because you experienced that um, the, 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 the horror of what was to come was, was in there and you saw the aftermath and you, could, you can kind of tease that out in your mind between it. Right, and I think when something is explicitly shown or written it can act as a kind of catharsis. Whereas if mm. it's withheld, then the reader or viewer has to, is sort of forced to hold it within themselves, mm. um, which yep. it ca- can be a more emotional and challenging experience, but also more perhaps richer experience. Yep. I think it's about knowing when to do each. Um, yeah. And I do want to pick up though as well on what you said about uh, taking yourself there can be quite uh, tough. And it, it brings me back to something, uh, one of the... Uh, speakers said at Melbourne Writers Festival talking about um, pushing the thing that hurts the most can also be very powerful but you have to also ask yourself where can I go with something because I think about some of the most painful experiences in my life um, and I think do I want to relive those moments and actors do this similar kind of thing you know how much do I want to go into that to bring up those emotions again and you want to dip into it and bring the reader with you but it can get uncomfortable if it's too real I suppose Mm. you might disagree with me on this but that's just kind of my my thoughts on that so I hear you I guess I find that I'm drawn to those like difficult mm. th- those difficult aspects of my own life are the ones that um, I find do just come up mm. over and over again in my art so once they're there I mm. feel like I have some responsibility to do them justice yeah. and really go there yeah, that's good um, 
it's sort of like uh, those sort of demons of your unconscious will just keep raising their head. Yep. Mm. And then once they do, are you going to... Are you going to do a, a a not true kind yeah. of inauthentic yeah. version of them because yep. you don't you can't you don't have the the bravery to really go there or mm. are you going to really go there? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean obviously not everyone does want to like really go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yes. um, th- those are the questions that I ask myself. Yep, it's within that idea of that pain, that personal pain, yeah. right? And using personal tragedy or using events in your life that are difficult. Um, the, somebody once told me that, you know, uh, being true to yourself in writing is not necessarily to write your life upon the page. Right. Because that can be inauthentic in, in and of itself. Right. Mm. But the idea is you convey the emotions through through the trauma or the, the joys and the highs and the lows by converting that into a story, mm. which reflects it. Yeah. And by doing that, the allegory is more true um, because instead of reflecting on uh, something else, it's reflecting on itself. So the, so the yeah. allegory is uh, is there and it's very um, personal. It feels yeah. more authentic. Um, and yeah, I'd agree with you, Kat, in, in that regard. It, within, my, uh, within my writing, I find, yeah, that it's for me, it's the, it's the, the pain of yourself or the things that have happened to you that, that drive you those are often the strongest drives. Right. Mm. Right. The, the, the highs are there, the, the, that euphoric uh, tendency is there. But people can relate to pain a lot more than they can relate to pleasure, mm. right? To, to joy. Um, because everyone feels pain and everyone feels pain in a different way. Hmm. Interesting. I, I think um, just to pick up on uh, the general theme around uh, being true to yourself, I think that's absolutely true. Like you, mm. um, Pete, you can you can tell when someone's not being true to themselves. You can tell when someone kind of pulls up, and I think you feel it in the right. And I'm thinking I maybe feel it more in movies uh, when I'm seeing something happen. Uh, but anyway, the 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 way that um, that that uh, movies that anyway sorry I'm, I'm getting myself off track there um so in terms of being true to yourself uh, i think that there's a point where things can get gratuitous and that's that's where you have to be careful like people can sense if it's just for the sake of it but if it's actually um because writing is such a personal thing when you're reading when you read an author's words on the page it's like you're in conversation almost you know mm. you're listening to them tell their story and you can tell when they've thought it through and they're sharing what they want to share and you're getting a, a piece of um their life i guess and that can be really authentic. Um, but if they want to um, go too far with it, I guess that may not work. Um, so uh, for those wondering why, yeah, <laughs> I've lost the train of thought. There was a little bit of a distraction in the bookshop, but uh, that's been cleared up. We're all good. Um, yeah, no, I'm interested, Kat, in what you think about um, the, the levels of difficulty, I suppose, mm. because as a as a culture, as you know, how we are reacting to media, I think it's one of the closer examples. I guess we can talk about um, is the reaction that Game of Thrones brought to a lot of people. Right. For most people, they hadn't watched fantasy mm. um, to a level that dealt with things happening within our world, within our modern society, um, reflected upon in art. Uh, that is usually considered to be, you know, Tolkienized or you know, safe, mm. um, using a, using another word, and then depicting a particular, se- a particularly sexual violence within Game of Thrones, for instance. Um, what what do you think that does to the genre? Do you think that it 
in a in a different way, you're taking the genre to a place that is more true, more reflective of society. What do you um, think on that? I'm not sure if I think that it's more true. I think we're going to look back at this era of grim mm. dark yeah. and understand that <laughs> it's it's really like it has nothing to do with realism and even mm. realism mm. itself. We'll look at those aesthetics and just view them as aesthetics yeah. the same way right. that we look back at like the picturesque from the 1800s and, and mm. we understand that that's just a constructed aesthetic. Yeah. I think we'll definitely kind of with hindsight come to view Game of Thrones and, and all the other sort of shows mm-hmm. and books mm. that, that take on that grim, dark, quote-unquote, realistic aesthetic in the same way. And Game of Thrones, I think, in particular, because it it's so clearly written as a reaction against Tolkien mm. um, and against that kind of eulogizing of a medieval past where the, you know, the, the hero wins and, and we're mm. in a kind of pastoral, bucolic world mm. where nothing bad will really ever happen to Team Good. And, mm. you know, it's it feels very safe, as you said. Um, and Frodo returns to Hobbiton, which is perfect and picturesque. Mm. Um, and so uh, I think it was a kind of a balance, especially at the time that he wrote it in the 90s, mm. to where the genre was at that time. Mm. Um, especially the kind of sword and sorcery books yeah. in within the genre. Um, so I, I, I do think it evolved the genre in one direction. It's just that that direction was quite extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's quite a, just its own particular thing. Yeah. yeah. Hi, a kind of, yeah, quite a hyper-masculine, violent um, mm. lens. Mm. In? Yeah, I mean, you... Game of Thrones, in, in reading the books as well, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, they, they kind of tone things down a bit in terms of the sexual violence on, on the series. There isn't so much, but it's kind of just, it's mentioned a lot in, in the books. You know, mm. Raping and Reaving is like mentioned a lot. Um, it Sometimes it can feel a little bit gratuitous, but, you know, yeah, I think you're right. Like book six, like spoiler alert, <laughs> is, is, a, is a pretty much 80% Theon Greyjoy getting tortured. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean... It's brutal. <laughs> it's pretty It's pretty violent. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And, I mean, it's it's not like it, it holds back in that regard. Um, I, I think you're right that it also follows a trend in which we've seen in fiction of late that uh, it actually would be kind of a forerunner to that um, in terms of the anti-hero as well because there's plenty of, of the anti-hero stuff happening. Um, and he does a really great job of getting you to feel empathy for some pretty uh, awful characters again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, there's very much showing you you come into the uh, the noughties and where we've been recently after the GFC and you really get down to all of these um, anti-heroes that are getting pumped out, whether it was um, thinking television, you know, Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad or um, Boardwalk Son- Empire. Sons of Anarchy. Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. Um, you know, there's all these anti-heroes kind of out there and, and you look at it and and at times it can feel like, oh, this is where everything's going. And then after all, you're like, okay, we've reached peak. <laughs> yeah. Peak, <laughs> peak anti-hero, please. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Within your book as well, Kat, there's a there's a character who's particularly um, cold or distant, right? Um, and we we're given a sort of uh, vision of this character and slowly revealed parts of his backstory, and we we get a sense of why he was made in this way, really, why he becomes this character, mm. um, and y- those themes often deal with violence um, towards him. Um, and then the reaction of his character against others in the world. Now, when you were when you were writing this, was there that sense where you were thinking about these ideas? And you know, the the topics brought up in the book are 
um, are quite confronting the idea of pedophilia and all these concepts. Was there was there a tension there in you when you were writing this? Um, and I, yeah. and and to qualify the question, I guess is isn't that interesting because when we write about violence, physical violence, and battles and such, we do it without question. Um, but this being a much more um, torturous thing, uh, that brings up completely different questions that we answer. Right, and it happens off screen as well. I yeah. suppose it happens mm. in the backstory. Yep. Yep. So, so we never get to see quite exactly what happened. Mm. Um, I really, I'm really fascinated by characters who have lived through some kind of difficult or traumatic experience. And to survive that experience, they're changed in some way. Mm-hmm. Some way that is adaptive for that damaging situation that they're in. But mm-hmm. then once they've moved out of that environment into a more regular, kind of safer, happier environment, they're kind of maladapted to the world that they mm. then find themselves in. Yeah. Um, and um, so I, I like damaged characters. And I particularly like characters who are sort of damaged in a way that they wear as strength or that mm. they perceive as strength, but yeah, that right. is maybe also a form of weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also really fascinated by, like, I love biased viewpoint in novels mm. and some of my favourite yeah. novels have biased narrators. Mm. Um, so I really wanted to enter the book through the viewpoint of a simplistic hero character <laughs> who mm. comes into a situation, thinks he understands exactly who the goodies and baddies are, yeah. and then slowly have that reality break down as we start to understand... Mm. Oh, there's things that are happening outside of this guy's point of view that, yeah, that. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I really, I really enjoyed that. So, um, reading through uh, the book and thinking about that, yeah, the, the hero kind of thing. It, it surprised me um, where things went in the story. And I, I came in, I intentionally read nothing to before I came to read, and um, I really enjoyed where the story went. And I, I think. I, I don't know what I was expecting actually coming in, but there were there were parts that yeah they are challenging You're to like, read. It's about a prince. I, that's all I had. It's a cap, captive, it's prince. captive prince. That was this, I read I read two words. Yeah, and then I, that was it. So um and and spoilers, you know there is surprisingly captive prince. Uh, so <laughs> he's a prince and he is a captive. Exactly. But I, I really enjoyed the unfolding characters and and what's great is um I like you know you don't write evil characters you write complex characters and it was great discovering some complex characters. I really, I really appreciated that. Um, but also a, a complex culture as well, where there's some things which were accepted, um, especially when, you know, there's this fighting happening. Um, there were things mm. that were accepted, which in society today aren't accepted. And it's kind of like, I really enjoyed discovering that, I think. Right. I think the societies that I created have some f- fairly negative practices, some yep. of them, that aren't perceived as negative by the societies. Yeah. Mm. So in a sense, that was an act of trust in the reader that the mm. reader with their modern morality would understand mm. yeah. um, that the, that what is going on in these books is not, uh, a, n- these are not positive mm. acts. <laughs> um, and yep. the fact that characters are unquestion- unquestioningly, um, how can I say, are going along with mm. these practices yeah. just means that they're of their they're products of their time of their communities and then they, that they might have some room to grow as characters throughout the narrative. And do you use the main character as sort of a camera lens in that regard of giving us this insight of he's also a bit you know right. unsure of what's going on, so we have mm. a sense of unsure. And uh, the, there's a, something I want to pick up what you just said there is that trust in that audience is that. Um, 
there's a and I, this has been you know happening a little bit more these days where people are talking about um, the responsibility as a writer, uh, you know, right. the writer's responsibility. Um, and it goes further in the idea that the writer's responsibility is to depict terrible things and mm. be very clear that they are terrible and the people who are doing it are terrible mm. um, in order that, you know, there's a sense of, you know, morality there. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that that is... Um, what a writer should do or do you think in the idea of a story that the story should have its own internal consistency divorce of our own i think that fiction can have different purposes Mm. Mm. so i i think that like 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 art can have a lot of different purposes And, and one of those purposes can be um i suppose showing us a a moral template um for how we should live Mm-hmm. where good acts are rewarded and bad acts are punished. Yep. Um, and bad acts are done by terrible people and the narrative is very clear that that's mm. exactly what's yep. happening. Um, and um, But I think art can also have other purposes as well, um, which is to explore greyer morality sets. Um, and as I said, trust in the reader to come to it with their own moral framework and then use that to decode yep. what's going on in the book. Mm. Um, or art can have purposes that are completely detached from that like catharsis or mm. excitement yeah um and um a- and in those cases i think the questions become even more complex and fuzzier mm. mm-hmm. um so uh so so I, I don't think that that all books must be didactic mm. i think that we can especially fiction mm. um i think that you know we we can evolve our morality through secular convers- discourse <laughs> mm, yep. um, and then use that morality to engage with multi-leveled fiction. Mm, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there are a couple of ways to do that. I guess that the, um, I think about a couple of uh, pieces I read way back in uni, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the classic reflection on slavery mm. uh, in the United States was very uh, out there in terms of uh, what it was trying to portray. It was it actually, and, it, and the author even in the middle of the book is saying, I plead with you, good reader, how can we put up with slavery? And so mm-hmm. that was a very obvious uh, take there. Yeah. I, mean, I read a parallel piece about a mutiny aboard a slave ship, and that was very dense, but again, achieved the same purpose, but without slapping you over the head by saying, um, I think, I want to say it was Dickens, but I've absolutely forgotten it's been 10 years since I read this. Um, it, it slaps you over the head with, uh, in terms of, the story, but it, it does, uh, you can read into it the uh, the morality and the suggestion. So again, it relies on the reader to pick it up and say, okay, it, it talks about this mutiny that's happened on the slave ship, um, and it's only a novella, very short, but it's so well written that um, it, it achieves the same thing, I think, in a very roundabout way, and there's something in respecting your audience in that sense, I think. Right, and I feel like there should be room for both yeah. both. Mo- approaches mm. um, that both have their value and their place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like one in some ways was really great for the masses because this person wanted to get, both wanted to get this message out that slavery is a terrible thing. One person did it from a way that was like pulp fiction, which was just mm. get it out there, anyone can read it. You know, let's let's get this into people's hands. Whereas somebody who wanted to appeal to a crowd who liked to analyze things and really sink their teeth into it had this uh, this deep message with lots of metaphor. So I guess that in that sense, both you wouldn't say either one was right or wrong. You just say these are two stories. Mm. Um, 
it it um it it brings me back and it's something you said cat and you mentioned sword and sorcery and that sort of like rang a bell in my head because yeah. i absolutely adore classic sword and sorcery yeah uh, with all its flaws <laughs> and still but yeah. uh it's gorgeous uh in its simplicity even but uh there's a writer that i mention a lot on the podcast which is carl edward wagner and he wrote the kane um novels and short stories and uh there was a book he wrote with bloodstone i believe it's called and Bloodstone is really interesting, and it's an omniscient narrator, right? So it it hops heads quite a bit in that book. And mm. today, in today's you know general reading, omniscient narrators are a bit less popular. You know, people don't like it as much as um, they did. But it was a very interesting book in the idea that Kane is a character that's an established character. He's written other stories about him, and he's an antihero. Um, mm. But in this book, in Bloodstone. It does something really interesting where it's this character that you kind of barrack for. Hmm. And then slowly as he teases this story along, you realize that like, no, actually I prefer this person in the book. Hmm. And this, hmm. this this character, her name is Tessa, and you really think that she's the she's just better as a person. Um, so you hope he loses and, and, and it's done so organically. Uh, that he doesn't tell you that, like, oh, he's re- he's a really bad guy. Let's show you, you know, let's show right. him doing really bad things. Mm. It does this organic um, evolution where you realize, I actually don't know who I support now. Right. And do I need to? Yeah. You know, like, where's this going to go? And at the, at the end of the story, I know that when I get to it, I'm going to mm. feel lost. And that's really exciting to me. Yeah. You know, we don't have this, you know, strong character that's either an anti-hero or a hero you've just got these characters that are doing good Mm. and bad things on their own and even back then you know that's the classic sword and sorcery cue Mm. but you know he was still playing around with those ideas um so it's it's been a very interesting discussion and uh something that we like to do once in a while is to bring around a difficult topic and uh and uh digest and i think it's a you know it's obvious but i think it needs to be said that these are Again, these are conversations. This isn't us, um, <laughs> I think, espousing our definite final views on this subject. It's just a conversation which we like to explore. Uh, final thoughts, Kat? Yeah, I would ag- agree with that. I, I feel like, especially when it comes to these difficult topics, as writers, we're, we're constantly trying to kind of evolve our art and evolve our approach as well. So I always feel like my position on this stuff is a work in progress. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I hope to get better with every book. Um, I, I really like, there's a quote by Freud mm. who never realized just how true this would become of his own work. Mm. But he said something along the lines of, I hope that everything that I write that is true just becomes matter of fact and everything that I write that is false is just laughed at. Mm. And that's mm. yeah, how that's good. I feel about art in general i like the idea that we evolve on from works and then mm. we can look back and see things in their yeah. cultural perspectives yeah that's good and i think that that would bring me to my final thought uh bouncing off that cat that uh staying true to yourself i think is the important thing in the middle of all this uh that you know as as things do fall away in time as people uh reread and, and check things out you spot the an author's truth coming out yeah mm. and uh there's the thing about culture is that uh, and we have it in Australia and New Zealand. You know, you don't recognise what what is cultural when you're in it. You mm. can't see it. You know, um, and and there are many examples. And authors have this wonderful ability to take you into a lens that you didn't have before, so you can see the issue for what it is. And I think Kat, uh, 
Captive Prince does that really well when you're looking at a certain culture, a culture through the lens of the main character. It, it, it gives you a chance to reflect on that. And so, yeah, I think it's important in the middle of all of that that if you stay true to yourself as a writer, you can, um, you can set about something that will last long, long beyond when you've written it. Wow. That mm. was that was pretty positive, Ian. That was a, that was a nice positive wrap. Wrap it up, little, little t- <laughs> bow tie that we can put at the end of that. Nice, I like that. Fantastic. Well, I've just ruined your moment, but you know, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. We're now going to tell you where you can follow us on our social medias and where you can buy our books and give us money. Cat, uh, would you start us off? Um, I am CS for Cat. Uh, across all media platforms. <laughs> so on Facebook and Twitter are probably my biggest hangouts or on the webpage at cspacat.com. Fantastic. And I note, I think your Twitter doesn't have um, divisions, so it's just cspacat. Yep, cspacat, all one word. Fantastic. Um, Ian? Yeah, you can find me on uh, on Twitter at ihlaking. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook's a bit quieter, but Twitter is where I hang out most of the time. Um, and check out ihlaking.com to see me write some blogs about things. Fantastic. Well, you can find The Morning Bell, themorningbell.com.au. We have, this is our 49th episode. Mm-hmm. The next will be the 50th, the big 5 wow, The big 5 wow. so we're, we're christening it, I suppose. Um, hopefully with another beautiful bow tie. Mm. Uh, but you can find out all our archives, both on iTunes and uh, on the website. And I hope you do subscribe and... Talk to us. We've, uh, the links at the start will be provided. Email if you want to get in contact with us and chat to us. And we're always willing to talk. And that is our brand. We just love talking, especially <laughs> about writing. That's true. Um, for myself, you can find me uh, at the Pen of Joel on Twitter, where I don't usually tweet. But when I do, it's usually every Monday where I recommend a particular classical music track that I've been listening to. Yes, I know. Um it could be operatic, could be neoclassical, it could be folk. You know, it's charming, and I like it, and I hope you like it too. Um, that's about it. I hope you can join us on our next episode. Uh, as I mentioned in the middle of the podcast, it will be a bit of a analytical breakdown of myth within film, specifically, and how it's presented. We're going to be using the upcoming film, uh, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, as our stake in which we plan to take many knives to it and cut it apart and see if there's any soul in that film at all so i hope you can join us for that movie uh and the talking of it thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then